This is Stephen Thibault, CAS, with another podcast, In Conversation. In July 2020, Peter Rial, CAS, retired, sat down with me to talk about his storied television re-recording career and how he became known as Dick Wolf's Mixer. From his early work mixing animated shows like The Transformers to working on prolific television shows like Hill Street Blues, Rockford Files, St. Elsewhere, Law & Order, Chicago PD, and Chicago Fire, he has worked on thousands of hours of television and always delivered a great mix. He has been nominated for three CAS awards and one for his work on the pilot for Six Feet Under. He received three Emmy nominations for his work on Hill Street Blues, Fox Fire, and Six Feet Under. I was excited to be able to sit down with Peter in my studio during the COVID-19 pandemic to talk about his career. I started by bringing him back to the 80s with these sound clips. Clothes in your bedroom closet. Sheldon, time to get up. Men's toiletries in your bathroom. What are you talking about? I'm talking about men's bikini underwear. I'm talking about a T-shirt, a T-shirt that says bankers do it with interest. Yuck! I'm talking about I can't little clothes. Believe it. I'm chased through the canyons by Mario Andretti. I have to fight off the galloping gourmet to get a ride home. You can't believe it. How do you think I feel all this time, not even knowing that you lived with a man? I don't live with a man. Not anymore. So that first clip was Transformers, needless to say. Yes. And the second was Remington Steel with Pierce Brosnan and Stephanie Zimbalist. Yes, that's correct. I'm curious, how did you get into sound in the first place? I was thinking of getting into the industry um, because I was tired of my previous job, which was selling cars. And my brother was working at a studio called Producer Sound Service. Okay. And um, I was hanging out with him. and I was there for a few days. We were standing in the hall during a real break, and the owner of the studio was having a discussion with an employee, and it was getting a little heated, and the employee said, you can't replace me. The owner, Don Minkler, looked down the hall and saw me there and said, you start Monday. And this was on a <laughs> Thursday. And the only thing I knew how to do at that point was to thread a 35-millimeter machine. And... I was being thrown into transfer, where I had right. to transfer dailies, do half inch, do 16, do 17 and a half, do 35. Um, so it was a lot to, to learn in half a Thursday and Friday, and then have to start Monday. Luckily, there was a mixer who, who had done the job previously named Alan Stone, and he would come in and help me. He was on the mixing console, so if I got into trouble, I had to wait between reels. You know, I had to stand by the door and wait to have him come help me. But I had to learn a lot real fast. And you got up to speed pretty quickly, obviously. Uh, yes, yes. It didn't uh, take too long. But um, again, somebody would come in with something unusual, and then I would have to learn how to make it work. Um, got to the point where I was ordering all the stock, all the supplies. Back then, in the summertime, things got you know, pretty tight at the studios. And so, um, especially being an independent studio, 
all the independents would kind of trade with each other because they'd run out of money and they couldn't buy any more film. And so they would maybe trade you boxes of cores just to get a thousand feet of, of, of mag, you know? Well, that's crazy. Yes, <laughs> yes. And we, even boxes were traded, film cans were traded. And sometimes you didn't have anything to trade and you had to just write it down, you know, because you still had a few rolls of stock. And, and we'd even get to the point where we would have to use used stock, you know, on, on things. So, uh, and we, we charged the client for the used stock. They, they didn't get charged full price, but there were certain editors in town that would, would come and trade, uh, again, uh, cores or reels, um, boxes for your short ends, your uh, single stripe short ends. They would cut them all together and make a 2000 foot reel. And then they'd sell that back to you. <laughs> back then things were, things were tough for the independents. I assume they still are, but how long did you work at Independent Studios? Oh, six, six, seven years maybe. When Producer Sound Service um, folded, I was still a recordist, and then I was the recordist on the stage, and then uh, we actually moved over to um, Paramount, and I was the recordist on stage H there, and that's where then I got promoted to Mixer. What was the first show that you had the opportunity to mix? Oh, first show I started mixing was the animation shows. So it was um, so Transformers, Transformers. G.I. Joe, um, which is a, it's really not a bad way to start because you're not dealing, even though I'm doing sound effects, you're not dealing with production tracks. So you know everything that's coming out of those speakers that isn't dialogue or music you have in front of you. And that's why when you actually then move on to doing live action... It's a new world because yeah. now you don't know, is that in the production track or is that something I have? <laughs> um, that was a new learning curve for me. And from what I understand, even that early Transformers show was, was pretty busy. Yeah, they were very busy. So what I would do is take the cue sheets and I would color code them. So before we even started rolling, I'd get in early in the morning and I took highlighters if it was Decepticon lasers, you know, it was red. You know, if it was a boat, it was uh, blue. You know, if it involved water or something like that. And so I had all this color coding um, because you didn't have time to read the cue sheet. Yeah, th there's just no time to read it, at, you know, and there's no automation. I only had 12 faders, so stuff was cut pretty close together. <laughs> yeah, but now I didn't have the Foley. At that time, the uh, music mixer mixed the Foley. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and then they that would get folded into my tracks. You were mixing effects. Mm -hmm. Who was doing music and, and who was doing dialogue? Um, Lee Minkler was doing music and Bill Thiedemann was doing dialogue. And so they were teaching me how. Again, luckily there wasn't production tracks because, like I said, that's a whole new beast. You had great mentors then. Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I actually, um, right at the very beginning, it was... Bobby Minkler, Bill Thiederman was doing sound effects and Lee was doing music and Lee was going to leave. And so then, um, and then Bobby was going to leave. And so, you know, that's what opened up the position for me. And actually, uh, I was getting ready to leave the industry because I was too bored in the machine room. It just, okay. there wasn't a lot to do. You know, you set up the the uh, mag and then you set the Dolby's and you know 
that's it. So I was getting really bored with it. And so I called the office and told them I was going to leave in two weeks. And they said, well, hold on. We have something for you. But they didn't tell me what it was. And then they said, we'll tell you when we can tell you. And then they told me that um, they were going to move me to the mixed chair. Fantastic. I know. I would, be, I would have been doing something totally different if not. So, Was that the only time that you thought about getting out of the industry? I left for just a, a short period. My mother was opening up a shop, um, a gift shop, and I was kind of missing the beach and all that. And so I did leave for uh, a little bit, and that was actually when Producers Sound Service closed. But I was thinking of leaving anyway. Then uh, Don Minkler got a job over at Glen Glen, and then he called me and said, would you come and be my recordist? And so I came back into the industry. But it was a very short period. It was probably less than a year. Did you have any formal training in sound? No, there really wasn't anything. I mean, some people would go to school, but it really didn't matter. It really mattered who you knew. There wasn't really much in the way of schooling, as far as I know, back then. I mean, you could go learn to be an engineer, you know, um, but the mixing and the recorder stuff was all just, you know, on-the-job training. In fact, I remember when I was in uh, transfer and I was young and, you know, long hair, and somebody would walk in and say, well, whose kid are you? So true, right? That was a regular thing, yeah. Who, who do you know? <laughs> who do you think you learned the most from? It was probably Bill Thiederman, because he, he's the one I was mixing with for quite a while. Um, it was probably Bill who, who was the biggest influence on me. When I first was mixing, the other mixers would tell me to wipe my hands off on my pants because I was getting the console so wet from sweating. <laughs> Another thing was, and I remember when I was first mixing, is they would say, "Look, go, lean over to me and say, lower the crickets. And I would say, what crickets? Because you couldn't hear them. You know, your, your ears just weren't tuned to that yet. Also, when I was first learning to mix, I thought after a couple years that I, I've got it. I, I think I really have this now. And I really understand everything that's going on. And then a couple years later... I would go, well, I didn't know everything two years ago, but now I do. And then a couple of years later, I would go, well, I knew nothing back then, but now I know. And that just kind of goes on, you know, through your whole career until you actually do get up to a point where you go, okay, I think I really have this now. You know, and that, that took probably six years at least of mixing and mixing a lot. We, I kept pretty busy throughout my whole career. Makes it rewarding though, doesn't it? It does, and it keeps you sharp, um, you know, because you're, you're always learning something new. But back then, you were learning like 10 things new, you know, every, every day. Yes, you were learning how to do something better, how to make something sound better. Um, how to do it faster. Yes, and how to do it faster. So how many days did you have to mix a show? We would mix two episodes in a day of the half-hour shows. You mix one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And it was pretty... Um, straight nine and nine hour day, nine and a half hours, um, sometimes overtime and not a lot. And sometimes you'd only have one show to mix. And sometimes you'd be sitting around waiting for reels. You could be waiting an hour for a reel to show up, you know, because they were, everything was based on the picture being ready and then them cutting the sound to it. Um, and it was being done overseas. So the picture wasn't always 
coming to the editors that quickly. Transformers, was that mono or stereo at that time? It was mono in the beginning, and then it became um, stereo music, but mono dialogue, mono effects. There was no panning. Or, not that the consoles that we were working on had much in the way of panning anyway, but... What, what kind of consoles were they? Uh, quad 8. But they were, there was not a lot of faders on those consoles. Let's take a listen to one of your early live-action series. What about Lieutenant Butts? What about it? As I jokingly suggested to his captain, are we supposed to pin a medal on him? He, in fact, was a decorated cop, am I right? And his jacket's as thick as the yellow page. People, without prejudging anybody, I'll say this once. The department is not afraid to sort out its bad apples. You wouldn't be going after Bonds to broaden the focus away from your busted internal affairs man, would you? Absolutely not. Each will be dealt with. In Bunce's case, he carried a weapon and assaulted a man while under suspension. Allegedly, of course. Please, people. On this day, when we should all be relieved and proud that a vicious killer has been brought to ground, let's not dwell on the department's thieving, bullying, greedy, lawless few. You're saying I'm finished, aren't you? Sir, if I have anything to say about it, you are. <coughs> So that was from the finale of Hill Street Blues. You received your first Emmy nomination for that show. Yes, we didn't win. I think it, I believe it was the the final episode. Yes, it was. Great work. Yeah, it was a fun show to to work on. Um, again, this is when I then started to work on live action. So this was like some of the first first live action I was working on. It was that Saint Elsewhere, Remington Steel, Moonlighting. Um, all real big shows at the time. So how did you get the opportunity to work on your first live action show? Bill Nicholson came in and filled in for um, Bill Thiederman, um mixing Transformers, G.I. Joe. And he was letting go his effects mixer. And he asked me if I would next season be his effects mixer. And so he really helped further my career because that's when I, I switched over to live action. That's great. Yes. So that's when you did all of those great 80s shows. Huh? Oh, yes. And I was, I was very happy to do that, to work on um, adult shows and ready to move on. You know, we had, we had worked on the animated stuff for a long time. And plus I knew, you know, Bill's reputation and, and who he was and, you know, how big he was in the industry. So that's where I, he really gave me a, uh, a big break. And it was just lucky that he's the one who came in and filled in. It was tough because another dialogue mixer um, asked me just a few days later if I would be his effects mixer. And I had to turn him down. Even though it wasn't 100% that I was going to be Bill Nicholson's effects mixer, um, I had to turn this other mixer down. You had a better feeling about working with Bill? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I knew the shows that Bill was working on. And I was like, I love these shows. You know, they're just fantastic shows. I mean, Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, you know, that's, that's enough right there. Let alone, you know, Moonlighting and Remington Steel. So, what a great opportunity. Yes, I'll... I'll uh, I feel like so much of, of this business is being in the right place at the right time, um, getting on a good project because like um, Six Feet Under, everybody was, oh boy, you work on Six Feet Under? 
And I was like, um, yes, I do. But I'm, I also work on these other shows because to me, those other shows were just as important as six feet under, but people, you know, related to six feet under. And so they would go, boy, you're so lucky you're working on that. And it's so good. Such a great show. And I was like, well, but so were all these other shows that I work on, you know? I mean, if you worked on Star Wars, you're, you know, a hero, you know, yeah. you worked on those early Star Wars movies or, um, uh, any number of, of projects. Do you have any other stories from the 80s shows? Um, Moonlighting was tough because they would come in on Saturday morning and they would have scene one cut. And that was it. So we'd make scene one and we'd wait for scene two to show up. And, and we'd make scene two. And the editor had to cut all these scenes back together and to make them, you know, 1,000 foot reels. And yeah. How long did you have to mix that then? Um, we mixed Moonlighting in two days. So usually Saturday and Sunday. I watched the pilot and then I watched the finale of Hill Street Blues. What struck me was how busy the show was. Yes. But also how much sound evolved over the course of the run, much like many of the Wolf shows that we'll talk about later. Yes. And they, what happened was when I first started mixing on Hill Street Blues, the editors gave me all those background tracks and they said, mix a three-track master for this because we don't want to be cutting all these background tracks, you know, week after week. So I mixed a three-track and what I did is on one of the tracks, I mixed it where it was just kind of light, maybe evening or, or nighttime um, background. And then on the next track, I would mix it a little busier. And then on the third track, I mix it even busier. And then I could play either all three of those at the same time or just one, depending on how busy we were. And they gave me a diagram of the squad room. So I knew kind of where we were in the squad room as to where it was going to be busier and not busy. One of the worst things that ever happened in sound was the typewriter going away because it really made a room feel busy. And when we switched back over to computers, they still wanted to hear all that busyness. And yet all it was was tip, 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 you know, little tic tacs. So um, it didn't have that same feel, yet the producers kept wanting us to push that sound. That's very interesting. I did, wouldn't even thought about it. But. Yeah, I know it was a killer because it had the bells on it. It had the carriage. It had the typing. You know, it, was a, it, it made a room feel very busy. And then when the background shifted over to computers, it really made a big so difference. So did you see an uptick with using paper shuffling? And yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happened. They wanted, to, they wanted to make shuffling. And we even got to the point where on the dub stage, we set up a microphone and we made our own background on the stage, just had everybody moving around, doing drawers, paper shuffling, moving around, um, just to create a busy background. But it could never be as busy as with the typewriters. That's what really helped sell it. And what season did that start changing? Um, as computers came around. So it was, would have been during the like Law & Order era. Okay. Yeah, it would have been around there. <laughs> on Law & Order, I only, um, I mixed the pilot and then later down the road, I mixed uh, more episodes of Law and Order. But I had already moved to a different stage and was doing dialogue at that time during the pilot. But they wanted me to do the sound effects on it because they knew me. They trusted you. Yes. 
You know, I noticed when I was watching many of your series from the 80s that re-recording mixers like yourself weren't credited. When did that change? I can tell you, I do not know the answer to that. But you are correct, where we did not have uh, screen credits. And you also notice how much slower the screen credits were back then. They moved much slower. Now they just fly by. Yeah. I mean, even if your name's up there, you can't see it unless can't you, you know where it's coming. <laughs> you know, you can't see it at all. So um, I would even be on the dub stage and I'd be looking at the credits and I go, I don't even remember my name going by. When you started getting credits, occasionally you'd see supervising re-recording mixer. Yes, that was the dialogue. That was the dialogue chair. Yeah, the dialogue chair, yes. Okay, because I, I don't see that anymore. Um, no, no, they don't do that except for maybe on, on features or sometimes they, on features, you'll see where both of them are supervising sound mixers, you know? Yeah, okay. You see that credit also, but... Here's another clip from an 80s show that ended up being super popular. It was actually one of my favorites. Damn, kid, it must be wonderful to be young and to know everything. You want to translate that, Mr. Carrera? Miguel, he does not realize that we are at war. Until Gato makes a move, everything must wait, even business. Well, the kid's not exactly your seasoned combat vet now, is he, Mr. C? Neither's that uh, chump counselor, Sugarman. They know nothing, even with all their fancy degrees. Not like me and you, I'm permitted. To the school of... Hard knocks. Hard knocks! <laughs> so that was from Miami Vice. Yes, of course. You did the last two seasons, I understand? Uh-huh. That's correct, yes. Uh, effects? Uh, I did effects. That was still three-mixer uh, job. And that was really tough on the dialogue mixer, that show, because anytime you're near the water, you know how noisy it is. I don't have to tell you that. I do. Yes, I always felt for all those shows done in Hawaii and anywhere near the beach, because it's I, I've lived by the beach before, and when I moved just a mile away, that first night, it was so quiet. I couldn't believe how quiet it was. I couldn't even sleep. It was so quiet. And I went, oh, that's why those protection tracks are so hard. You know, unless you're a sound person, you, you, you don't necessarily notice how loud it is. You, get, you filter it out. Yes, yes. But once you put a mic up clo close to the ocean, it's, wow, it's thunderous. Yeah, it's just like when somebody will point out a sound to me and say, oh, that's such a great sound, and I go... Yes, but don't you hear those other 10 sounds that are happening at the same time? You can't isolate that sound. Well, you can start trying to with all the technology now. <laughs> yes, yeah, hopefully, yes. So Miami Vice, that was your first show at Universal, is that correct? Uh, yes, we were doing that, and uh, we were doing Murder, She Wrote. We did Father Dowling Mysteries. We did a show called TV 101. We did a bunch of the Perry Mason movies. Um, and were you on different consoles now? Were they on Harrison's yet? Uh, we were on Harrison's when we moved to Dub Stage 2. We were on Dub Stage 3 at that point, and um, we were on the Quad 8 still on that stage. I think the only Harrison was on uh, Stage 2 at Universal. But that was stereo at that time, right, Miami Vice? It, music was stereo. Dialogue and effects were, were still mono, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because we were recording onto a four-track head. 
And so it'd be dialogue on track one, music on two and three, and effects on four, effects and foley on four. Big music, big effects show. Or loud music, loud effects, right? Yes. As loud as we were allowed to go. We were very limited on how loud we were, we were able to go. Kind of paved the way for the later work, though, didn't it? Yes. I mean, the thing that really got me up to speed was doing those animated shows because you just had to – they were just coming at you at all, at all times. I mean, anytime it got quiet, you knew it was just a matter of seconds before, you know, incoming <laughs> on G.I. Joe and Transformers. I mean, you, you just knew it was going to happen. Um, and then we didn't really get into all the stereo uh, in TV until six-track heads came around, where we could do left-right dialogue, left-right music, and left-right sound effects. What was... And what, that was two-track stereo. What show would that have been? Oh, because some of the shows still required a mono, because there was something on CBS they called CBS Stereo. And what they did was take the mono tracks and run it through a box and phaser or something. Yes, like to that. make it stereo is what they did. But did um, you cringe? Yes and no. I mean, luckily it was just two track, and you know our TVs at home just had little speakers on them, so um, people weren't really into the big sound yet for TV. Do you have any Michael Mann stories? Not from working <laughs> on Miami Vice. I worked with him on Last of the Mohicans on a near field version. Chris Carpenter was mixing it for the first day, and then I took over because he had to go on to mix something else. And I knew of Michael's reputation. I knew he also mixed a bit. And so when I came in to do the show, I said to him, well, there's, there's going to be a lot of work here, so maybe if you take the music, we can get this done quicker. And so he was, oh, okay. And so I had the music patched down to uh, another section in the console, and he mixed the music, and I would punch him in and out. That kept us friends for the next couple of days. He never once raised his voice with me, or, I mean, he was, he was great to me. But I did hear him use the phone, and he would raise his voice to people. It's a really delicate environment, isn't it, the dub stage? Yes, yes. And it, it, it just really is a lot on the client, what the client's personality is. You just have to work with them. I mean, to me, I feel like that's a big part of mixing. It's probably at least half of it is working with the clients, making them feel comfortable about you, making them want to be there with you, um, that's why it's sometimes good to know them before they show up or know of their reputations. Because if you have a regular client like I did with Law & Order, you know what you're getting into. Yeah, probably had a shorthand. They had a, they had a great, they, no, they were really, really probably my favorite client of my career was working with Arthur Fernay and Tim DeLuca and, and they, they were like family. You knew their wives' names, you knew their kids' names. And uh, so that was the most fun. Let's listen to a clip from an unusual show that you won a CAS award for. Do you work here? Uh, yes. I wanted to compliment you on the music. I've been to three other funerals this year. Cancer, stroke, pediatric leukemia. 
And the music is always that same sad organ music. It reminds me of those soap operas my mom used to watch before I started kindergarten. Oh, God. You're probably too young to remember that. <laughs> anyway, I so prefer this light, classical, you know, chamber orchestra stuff. It's still spiritual, but doesn't seem so dated or depressing. <laughs> I studied music appreciation. You think I'm really boring, don't you? Well, get used to it, because now that your father is dead, you can forget about ever going to law school. It's just you and dead people and freaks like me for the rest of your life. So the pilot of Six Feet Under. You did some really interesting work on that show. Yes, that was, there was very little music in the show, score-wise. So a lot of it was done with source. Um, we had an actress that uh, had an accent. So she had lots of, of ADR to be done. My favorite thing about Six Feet Under was that for me, it was the first time mixing something that didn't feel like a typical TV show. Because somebody would walk into a room by themselves and just stand there and look around and then turn around and walk out. I had never done a show that wasn't just all dialogue, you know, bam, 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 dialogue, bam, 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 action. So this was the first time that it felt more like working on a feature. The audience was allowed to think for themselves instead of having the dialogue tell them how to feel. To me, it was great because I thought, okay, the audience has to figure out what that person is thinking. The person isn't telling us what to think. We have to figure out what that person is thinking when they walked in that room, just by looking at the expression on their face and you know, knowing, knowing what just had happened ahead of time. So I thought that was uh, very interesting and made it fun to work on. And you were working with Roberta at this time? That's correct, yes. You, you were in the dialogue chair? Yes, dialogue yeah, dialogue music, music. <laughs> dialogue music, yes, yeah. And that was in Surround? Yes, that was in Surround. And and you were on Harrison, or were you in the Pro Tools at that, this point? Um, We were on, no, we weren't in Pro Tools. Uh, we were on the Harrison console at that point. And then we had a, um, a couple of... Uh, outboard consoles. I had a Yamaha outboard just because I had way too much ADR. And <laughs> um, Roberta had a, it was called an Eagle. I can't remember the name of the brand, but it was an outboard console that had um, two rows of faders because we just started getting more and more tracks on shows. So not that that show had a lot of tracks other than ADR. And a lot of that was because of they would have the editors cut it where it would be the whole line of dialogue that would be replaced, maybe just a couple words and then a couple syllables. And so uh, I would have to present it all three ways, yeah, all three options, um, without having um, EQ and reverb automated. So you had to write everything down still. We were still on cue sheets and... Made it very difficult. That's why I had the outboard console was because I had three versions of every line of ADR. Crazy. Yes. Yes. I bet you were happy when Pro Tools started becoming more of a standard. Yes. Um, I was lucky because they offered me up mixing theatrical trailers at Universal. And I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity to learn Pro Tools because the client won't be in the room with me when I'm mixing. 
they'll only be there for playback and then fixes. So it gives me the opportunity to play with the Pro Tools and really learn it. So that was a great way to learn. And they had brought in somebody to teach me how to do it. And he stayed with me for like a week and taught me Pro Tools. That's great. Yes. Yeah. And then I could play with it. And like I said, on my own terms. Let me share a clip from one of your features with a director I've heard you enjoyed working with. Very tense from this. You have one of your headaches? Ooh, very, very tense about this. Alice has been bad. She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. No. Remember not to bruise her face. Bad girls. Burn in hell. <laughs> People under the stairs. Yep. <laughs> Wes Craven days, huh? Yes, yes, yes. And Wes was a wonderful man to um, work with. Um, you would think he would maybe be this uptight, uh, high-strung person because of the movies he does, and yet very calm and very much a gentleman. And um, I really enjoyed working with him and all the people around him because of the way he was, all the people around him were that way too. So that was great. It's true that it starts at the top, right? Yes. Yeah, and if he... If he wanted me to change something in the mix, he would stand up from the cadenza, walk around to the console, and stand next to me and ask me to do the fix. And then I would do the fix, and he would nod and say, good. And then he'd go back behind the cadenza and start writing again. Because he, he wrote on the dub stage all the time. He was writing uh, his next script. So Wes was more of a quiet, reserved presence on the dub stage? He was very much so, yes. Yeah, he was he was a lot of fun to work with. I did three of his films, and um, uh, the only thing about doing those kind of films is your ears get very tired during those big scenes. You know, you just you go home and you go, boy, that just does not sound that great. And then you come back in the morning and you play it back, and you go, oh, well, that's not so bad because your ears aren't tired now. But yeah, because you're always working late, late, late on those big scenes. You know, the big loud, noisy. You know. Um, scenes and to me it felt like that you're better off just moving on and coming back to it it's true because you're just beating it you know you're just beating a dead horse basically when it starts to get midnight and you're working on those really loud scenes I, I could see that yeah, ear fatigue yeah so a lot of times I would say let's get off of this scene and move on to something else and we'll come back to this you know, with fresher ears. I loved hearing the people moaning in the back of that the people under the stairs. Hearing all that <laughs> moaning, hearing that reverb, and putting them behind the walls, and you know, fun, right? That kind of stuff is really a lot of fun. Yes, yeah. When it works, when it, and hearing it played back, it sounded like it was working. Yeah. The unfortunate thing about that show is they the house, which was such a cool looking house, was right by the freeway. So if we went to exteriors. It, which we didn't do a lot of, but it was, uh, you were battling the, the freeway. Peter, did you do any production sound or spend any time on set? No, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I think in this industry, the being mixers or sound people, one of the best things we could do is visit each other's environments. Because we had a 
production mixer come to the stage one time and he said, I had no idea what you guys did. He goes, this really opened my eyes up. He goes, because there's mixers early on in my career that I had talked to, production mixers, and they would set up an ambient mic thinking that we wanted all that traffic and we wanted all those birds and all that stuff. And, you know, we're dealing with a mono track, you know, one, uh, you know, they're mixing it on, on a Nagra. And um, with him coming to the stage, he went, oh, I see. You're just trying to get the dialogue as clean as possible and you're letting the sound effects fill everything up. And we said, yes. And so I thought one of the greatest things to do would be to have production mixers come to the mixing stages and have re-recording mixers go on production because he, you could see then what um, the production mixer is going through. Because I worked with a mixer who was a production mixer and then be, and um, then he became a re-recording mixer and he worked on um, the Lucy show. I love Lucy. And he said he could stop them shooting if the sound wasn't right. Mm -hmm. He said he was given all the time in the world to get the sound, you know, set up. And then if a light started buzzing or something happened, he could say, you know, stop. And I know it's not like that now for the guys. It's like, get going quick. Luckily, I was able to get down to um, live shoots, but it wasn't a regular thing. I mean, the easiest one was at CBS Radford because of we mixed St. Elsewhere and just right across the street, they shot it. And so the actors could walk even right over and do an ADR line, you know, a wild line, and we could go over to the to the set and, and see them shoot if we wanted to. You know, I think it's important for the sound team to communicate. It can elevate the sound of the entire project. I mean, if I can give a heads up to the supervisor that we're having a problem with a certain noise on set and give them the heads up, they can allot a little bit more time for fixing that, that issue. Yes, they, we've had that happen before where they'll call the, the um, uh, sound uh, editorial supervisor mm -hmm. and tell them, warn them ahead of time that there was a problem with something. Um, sometimes it's not that bad, you know, but they'll say, you know, there's this ringing we're getting or this buzzing we're getting. And um, I tried to fix it, but I wasn't able to. So in the time allotted, it. in the time allotted <laughs> again. So, you know, get your dip filter out and, you know, be prepared. You started to work in features. How did that come about? Well, what happened at Universal was we did television during the television season. And then in the summer, we would do features. That's great. Yeah, we do features and movies of the week in the summertime. Yeah, that was a great thing about working for um, a big studio. They fed you a lot of material. How did you get the work? Through relationships with directors or producers? Or did it could be sound, assign... sound supervisor. The sound, uh, sound supervisors usually would uh, direct the directors in that, in that direction. Yeah, because that's how, how it mostly was with the features I got were, were because of Paul Clay was the supervising sound editor. And I worked with him on television shows, and then he would do the same thing. He would work on a feature then in the summertime to keep busy, and then he'd bring the feature to me. Did you have a preference? 
I guess the best thing about working on TV is that you do know the client. So you know what to expect, you know, each week, week after week when you're doing episodic rather than when you do a movie of the week, when they first walk in, you really don't know which one of them is the dominant person. Um, you need to learn about them. Uh, so that makes it difficult. And same thing on a feature, you know, you need to, you need to meet these people and, and know their likes. So I think TV, episodic TV was more fun because you knew the people. And they became more like family because you knew them year after year, uh, week after week. They would come in, and uh, um, I just think it was it was easier and more fun. It was always hard, like I said, every time a new client comes in because you don't know what to expect. They could be, you know, a monster, and some were, <laughs> and yet others were really nice. Um, I did a temp dub with John Carpenter, and I knew of his reputation too. And yet he was fantastic um, to us, to the mixers on the stage. Um, he even came up to me and stood next to me and he said, Pete, anytime you want, I got some, I put some beer in the fridge. And so if you want to have a beer, stop down and have a beer, feel free. And yet then I would hear him on the telephone or on the stage, you know, yelling at people. And so, um, Again, that not knowing what to expect, and then yet he turns out to be a great guy, at least to us, at least to the mixers he did. And I always felt like we're trying to do the best we can on your project and make it better. So the best thing you can do is be nice to us so that yeah. we work hard for you. Well, and, and who works well under a ton of stress? Right, because your mind starts to starts to wander, and you you know it's, it's harder uh, to focus. You can't right? focus. Yeah, you can't focus. Let's listen to the following clip from a show you didn't have trouble focusing on. Gosh, damn, burning down the Rossi building, man. Join the guards and stay out of this crazy war. Freaky thing is, now the war is coming home to us. Now we're going to put a stop to this. The same group that we're dealing with here today, and there's three or four of them, they only have one thing in mind that is to destroy higher education in Ohio. They're not going to take over campus. So that was from the 70s. It was a big mix. <laughs> that was a fun mix. I heard it. Yeah, that was that had some very busy scenes in it. Luckily, the whole thing wasn't busy, but that was a lot of fun because I grew up in the seventies. The music was great. One of the hardest things on that show was that the music were all very familiar songs to everybody, and they would make picture edits, and then all those places where the music was supposed to hit, it wasn't hitting. And the director 
didn't like that so much. Um, so I kind of felt for the music editor because he had to keep trying to make things work and they were cutting the picture. And the director just remembered from an earlier cut that this is how the music was hitting everything. So that was quite difficult on the stage. And again, you were expecting the lyrics of a song to continue on and then, you know, goes into, into instrumental. So again, these songs were very familiar to you and yet they've changed now. That's funny. Because of the edits in it. Um, all the same, it works. Yes, I think when we were done, it all worked, yes. Yeah, again, I really enjoyed working on that project because um, it brought back things that you remember in the news. Um, but again, from what you just heard, that was quite busy. Oh, yeah, but you it's were fun. weaving in and out of things yes. like, constantly. Yes, you're playing the music full bore, and then you got to get squeeze some dialogue in there. and um, so Quite a few effects, too. Yeah, so those type of shows, I feel probably the best about after you get it all right and you play it back and you go, wow, that's really good. It makes you feel real good. Absolutely. That you helped help the project make it better. You also received a CAS nomination for that too? We could have. Um, I don't remember, <laughs> tell you the truth. Yeah, you were a nominee for, for CAS for the oh, 70s. Okay. Bringing up CAS, when did you join the organization? We got nominated for Six Feet Under. Did you take an active role in, in, in the organization at all? Or? No, I did not. Um, part of the thing is living in Ventura and having a family. As soon as we wrap, I'm out the door and, and heading home. I really like to be outdoors. Any opportunity to be outdoors, I take advantage of. Don't blame you. Yeah, with, with spending most of your life indoors mixing, you really can't wait to get outside. Todd Morrissey, my mix partner, um, he would take go take a walk and I'd go take a walk, you know, at separate times. If he had a big loud scene with sirens and gunshots and stuff, I would go take a walk. And if I was working on a scene that he knew I was going to be on it for a long time, he would go take a walk just to get outside. That's helpful. Yes. Yeah, well, it helps clear your head and, and I think the exercise helps. Just makes you feel better. Well, if you're going to have a long career, you've got to have your health too, right? Yes, and the, I, I definitely agree with that. On the following film, I know you're credited as additional re-recording mixer, mm -hmm. but I did have a few questions for you anyways. Okay.
So that was uh, the film August Rush. Yes, it was. <laughs> but that struck me as a very complex mix. First time I saw that, I said, this is the most amazing sound. I can't believe how they pulled this off, how sound effects turn into music, music turns into sound effects. Yeah. Um, it was crazy. Now, we did the temp dub on it, but we weren't the original mixers of the temp dub. We were doing uh, fixes of a, of a cut, um, although they were quite extensive, and, and um, uh, we did do uh, contribute a lot to the sound there. The additional recording um, credit is because I pre-dubbed all the dialogue for Chris Jenkins, and okay. he, did, he did the final. He was working on another show and couldn't pre-dub the dialogue. Did working on August Rush influence your later work? from a stylistic point of view? Yes, and I'm surprised more people haven't done what they did in August Rush because it was just the most clever thing. It's, it's just unbelievable. And then when you get to the, the very end where it's cutting back and forth between the rock and roll and the symphony, and it just, it's just, it, it was brilliant. And I remember when we started in on the temp dub, in the very beginning, we didn't know what we were getting into. And you're just going, this is pretty amazing that somebody pulled this off and then as the, the film progresses and they get into that like scene where we just were and um it just putting all that together with the picture and the sound i mean you it just mind-boggling it, it was beautiful yeah i was going to watch part of august rush just to get a feel for your work on the show and after watching the clip that i played back for you i was hooked Yes, it was very, very clever. I mean, it was really a lot of, of uh, I think, the composer working with the sound editorial supervisor, yep. working with the picture editor, working with the director's vision. I mean, I think it all, it all, that all had to come together, and they pulled it off. I was surprised it didn't get nominated for uh, an Academy Award for Sound. I don't think enough people saw it. I don't think so either, yeah. They didn't want to see Robin Williams in a dark role, I think, was part of it. I'm, I'm not really sure, because getting the picture was very good. Now I'm going to play back a clip from another great series you were involved with that I'm sure you'll have a bit to talk about. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. <laughs> I can't believe she could be so stupid. This from the genius who mooned the girls' soccer team in 10th grade. What are you guys doing on my computer? What were you doing? Exposing yourself to some creep on your webcam. He took a video capture of it. It's all over the net. It's just my boobs. Okay. And why don't you ask Dad where he found this? I and mean, what site was he on? Who is he, Liza? Here I found him. Fighter boy. You know he has a blog? Dad, please. Just stop. You like what you see? Oh, great. We're not naive. We know kids experiment, but this creep had the video of our daughter on his blog. She's 17. Yeah. If she consented to chat with him, there may not be much we can do. But he has videos of other girls who look much younger. Mm -hmm. Do you have his blog address? Yeah, I got it. He's got girls on his blog, pictures of guns. He's a freak. Yeah, they do look young. Um, can you excuse me a moment? So needless to say, that was uh, Law & Order. Yes. 
Yes, I've done a lot of Dick Wolf uh, shows. Some were big hits, others were just short runs, but I'm sure I probably did at least 15 uh, different shows of his. But I'd say the majority of his shows went on to have very long runs and yes. be very successful, right? Yes, yes. And um, SVU and um, Chicago Fire and Chicago PD and Chicago Med all got picked up again. And so, um, and I believe it was for three years, their last pickup. So they got, they got two more years to go still. Crazy. So that's crazy. Plus he, Dick has shows on other networks. Yeah. He has the FBI series. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, quite a uh, creator, we'll say. You became known, I don't know if it's official or not, but as Dick Wolf's mixer. Yes, I know. People told me that before. I've, I, I've heard one mixer tell, he didn't tell me, but he told, um, he was telling somebody else um, because they came to visit the dub stage and he said that Peter has made, Peter, me, has made a career out of working on Dick Wolf shows, which it has been for quite a few years, but I did a few other shows too in the, in the process. So with a show like Law & Order or any of your other series, how much does the soundtrack evolve from the pilot to the final episode? Uh, every show I've worked on has, has it evolves as you go along. And um, we, I remember when we got some no, new producers on, uh, on a show, and they said, I want you to play the music against the dialogue at this level for this episode. And then next week, I want you to bring the music up a little bit closer to the dialogue. And the week after that, I want you to bring it up even more and continually do that until I tell you to stop. So they, what they would do is go home and listen on their TV and see the balance between dialogue and music and then say, okay, this is where it needs to be. Why wouldn't you just listen off near fields? Um, they really wanted to hear what happened, you know, through the network process because obviously then once it goes to the network, it gets messed with again. You know, some of them do. They put it through a compressor or limiters on one network, which I won't say the name of the network, but they would play a lot of older movies, but then they had their own newer shows that we were mixing. And to make sure that they were all about the same level across the board, they would take and raise all the mixes, 3dB, and then compress them all. You would go, well, I remember mixing and not hearing all those footsteps and, and creaky floors and stuff. And then you hear it on the air, and you hear every time somebody stops speaking, you hear all the backgrounds rise up, whether it be production or effects or everything rise. And then every time somebody speaks, you would hear them all shut down. Um, so for that reason, it does have value to listen to it on air and what it sounds like at your, at your own home. And maybe play it on, on a few different TVs at your home. Now, was this before... The, the ATSC standards and so forth, or? or? Um, this was a while back, um, but not that far back. And this is not a major network okay. that I'm speaking about. So, and that's the other thing. I mean, all the networks have different specs. And so on one show we were working on, they measured it act by act you would be mixing one act all indoors in an office and then the next act would be a big shootout 
and it would be a big long shootout with car chases and everything. And so in one act, the dialogue is really loud. And the next act, the dialogue's not as loud because you're, you're really pushing the dialogue to get to those numbers in that talking act. And then in the action one, you've got to let the effects and music get, use up a few of these points that you're allowed, you know? So you have to creatively, um, in those louder acts, start creeping the dialogue down so that when the big action happens, it has much more impact. But it made it very difficult to mix. That's why the uh, Chicago shows were, uh, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, were so great to mix on because NBC's specs are so generous. Law and Order as well, right? Yeah, yes, Law and Order too. But they, that, if you look at Chicago Fire and you see all that action, sometimes a fire, a big major fire, would last into several acts. And, you know, if you had to hit those specs like that other network, the show wouldn't sound nearly like it does because it really sounds good, Chicago Fire. And it Chicago does. It's PD, a great sounding show. Sound great, yeah. yeah and I'm not PD just, as well. I'm not crediting myself to that. I'm crediting the whole crew, you know, everybody, the editorial, the production side, um, the music, the composer, um, just everything about it. And we're, we were given a lot of liberty to mix things the way – we thought it should be mixed. And then the producers would come in and sit back and enjoy it. And if something bothered them, they would tell us. Or if they had an idea, they would say, can we try this? But we were given a lot of liberty to mix dynamically and, and have fun with the show. That's the other thing. We were afforded uh, the time on those shows for me to get the dialogue as clean as possible, uh, let the sound effects fill everything in, and... The music was recorded unbelievable. I would have other mixers come in the room and they would be going, wow, I wish we had music that sounded like that on our shows because it just sounded huge. It was big music. Yeah. Yeah, both of those shows had huge music, Chicago Fire and Chicago PD. Say that's true for all of the shows, right? Um, mostly, but it, you know, over time... Um, obviously in the beginning, early on in the shows, the music wasn't nearly as, as big and full. Yeah. We just, cause technology wasn't there also. The technology is there now. The samples are much better. And it's like when we would do those movies of the week, um, back in the eighties and they would ask me to, you know, EQ the music and you would go to add some low end to a music cue and it would just start breaking up because the, the samples weren't very good. These guys were recording in their garages, just using the samples available at the time. And that's what all those movies that we had, because they were all, or not all of them, but a lot of them were um, on smaller budgets. So they shot in Canada, then they posted down by us, and they, um, composers, you know, would do it literally out of their garage, or if they had a home studio, but we would always use the term out of their garage. It was just funnier. <laughs> So I heard on the first Law and Order, you were the effects mixer on the pilot? Yes, on the pilot, I was. And it was only because the client was familiar with me, but I had already moved over to, we were on Dubstage 2, I had already moved over to doing dialogue on Dubstage 1, but I had worked with the client on other, other projects, and so they asked me to do the sound effects on it. Great. They went with what was comfortable to them, huh? Yes. 
At what point in working with the Dick Wolf Company did you move over to the dialogue chair? Well, I did um, I did a bunch of different series of his um, in the dialogue chair. But then I went on and worked on features, and then I worked on trailers, and then I came back to working on Dick Wolf shows then. And at that point, when I came back after leaving trailers, um, then I was mixing almost exclusively Dick Wolf shows. The only, there was just a few um, other shows that we did. One was we did the last season of Desperate Housewives. As soon as that ended, we did the pilot for Chicago Fire, and then Dick Wolf took off again. It was, you know, um, ruling the network. How many episodes or seasons have you done on Dick Wolf series? Wow. Um, obviously, hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Um, well, you had hundreds in Chicago Fire and Chicago PD. Yes. So I, mean, I didn't want to say thousands, but um, it's certainly way up there because ever since I've been at Universal, I've worked on and off with his projects, and it just happens that the last you know, 10 years was, uh, was almost ex exclusively him. You know, like I said, other than Desperate Housewives, and we would do some movies a week, and then we also did Suits for the USA Network. So uh, over the years, how many times did Dick Wolf come down to the dub stage, and what sensibilities did he bring to the stage when he was there? Well, on his earlier shows, he did come to the stage for playbacks, um, definitely for pilots, and um, new series, he would come down for um, playbacks. And then he he's definitely the man in charge <laughs> in the room. I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the man. Um, he's very nice. He, um, then after I left and went into features and I went into theatrical trailers, and came back then to um, working on Dick Wolf shows, he only came down for the pilots. On Chicago Fire, when he came down for that pilot, we actually took it to stage six, a theatrical room. And we were still working on the pilot, even while we were playing back the pilot <laughs> uh, in, the, in the theatrical room. We didn't really get much of a chance to to hear what it was going to sound like because we were coming from a very small room to a very large room. And luckily I got to run it for just a, a few minutes before he was going to show up and it sounded fantastic in, in the big room. He came down, the other um, producers came down and it was just Dick and me at the console and I said, Dick, just let me know when you're ready and we'll, we'll hit play here. And Dick stood up and turned around and faced everybody in the room. And he said, this playback is for me. So after we're done playing it back, I will tell you what I feel, but I don't want to hear anybody's input, you know, here on the stage. And... So that's how it went. We played back at the very end. He was thrilled um, with the sound because it was huge in that, in that room. And 
nobody said anything. <laughs> I mean, there was a little bit of an applause at the end from everybody, but, um, but that's how it went down. Because he just didn't want to discuss anything. He didn't feel it was right to discuss anything on the dub stage about the show. Let's, you know, take it back to our offices and we'll, we'll talk about it personally. So again, he, he, he commanded quite a presence and um, a hardworking, a hardworking man. I mean, he's deserves, I think, everything he has. <laughs> Because he, he definitely a hard worker, and I, I say that about all, and that that then trickles down to everybody else who works for his organization. Is everybody works really hard? They take a lot of pride in um, in these shows because they know they are quality. I mean, the, that's the other thing that was really a lot of fun about working on these shows is the the level of quality. I would be on some shows, and there would be something wrong sound wise picture wise and they would just let it go and not on a dick wolf show that doesn't that doesn't happen any little thing uh no we need to we need to fix that i don't care what it's going to cost it needs to be right because it's it's forever when we're done this this gets put away in a library and never to be touched again probably and it goes into syndication and plays a ton. Yes. So, if, you know, you start letting one thing go, then you start letting other things go, you know, and they just did not do that. Um, we were working on one show, and uh, this is not a Dick Wolf show, and it was a show that they didn't spend a lot of money on, and at the very last scene, at the end of the show, the crane pulls back um, with the camera on it, and you start seeing crew members. And they said, it's too late. And so it went out that way. And like I said, that would never happen on a Dick Wolf show. But we were just like, we were just like looking at each other going, there's a guy there with a computer on a stand in an exterior shot. <laughs> it's a cabin, picture of a cabin. We're pulling back from the cabin. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's, that was one one of the many good things about working on on a Dick Wolf show is the uh, the quality, unbelievable. You know, it's nice to be part of that. Yes, yes, because it helps that everybody cares so much, and not just oh well, you know, it is what it is type of thing. I mean, we always went to try to do make things better. I remember one episode of a show, and it was called Players. It was a Dick Wolf show, and they wanted to add a line, and so we mixed all night till the next morning till they could get out to where they were shooting in San Pedro and record a line of dialogue from the actor, and we put it in that morning, but we had to stay there all night and wait till they could shoot the line on, on, uh, on set. Wow. So that's that's what I mean about the quality. You know, they they just it's it, yes, it costs money, but uh, it's going to make the show better. And I was nervous because we were just recording the one line, and there were lines on either side. <laughs> it was voiceover, <laughs> too. <laughs> and uh, luckily, we didn't have to worry about sync matching. But I was going, maybe you want to get the lines on <laughs> each side, and well, let's just get the line. And I said, okay. And luckily, the production mixer he he nailed it, and. Uh, it, it almost just dropped right in. Let me share a clip from one of the other Dick Wolf shows you mixed. Today, we have made history. Together, 
we have elected change. Change for our city, our children, our communities, our neighborhoods, for ourselves. Because of your hard work and determination, today we have brought promise back to Chicago. The promise of transparency, justice, and reform. A promise of order. A promise that if you're of moral heart and work hard, that this city will provide you with every opportunity to succeed. Because today, Chicago, your voices have been heard. Yeah, that was Chicago PD. Yes, but listen how big that music was. That's that's feature music. It definitely is. So I've heard mixing crossover episodes can be very complex. Can you tell us why and what the workflow is for, for these crossovers? They're very popular, so the network loves them, and Dick Wolf loves them. People working on the post side of it, it can be quite difficult. Um, also for the composer, because we do mix the show separate and then we have to join them or we mix them as one and then we have to separate them because you still need to have individual episodes that are going to air by themselves. And then also you have the, the, um, the crossover, which is where one show shifts to the other. Now on Chicago Fire, visually and sound-wise is prettier. The colors are, are brighter um, picture-wise. And uh, again, sound-wise, the sound is cleaner. And then on Chicago PD, it's much more of a grittier show. So even the sound, we mix the sound more gritty. And even the production tracks, uh, come in a little grittier on that show than they do on Chicago Fire. And so it has a different um, sound to it. And so we were mixing those two, but then Chicago Med is mixing on another stage. So that's when it also gets much more difficult. So you weren't mixing both shows? No, I was mixing Chicago Fire and Chicago PD, but I wasn't mixing Chicago Med. Oh, that was on gotcha. another stage. So when we got to the point where there was a three-show crossover and not just a two-show crossover. That made it difficult, too, because our dialogue levels had to be kind of, you know, they had to be close going across from, from show to show. When we cut to Chicago Med, it just goes, boom, we're in the hospital. And there's, you know, all this chaos going on. And yet, at the end of Chicago PD, it's, it's maybe just a siren. And, and, of course, music goes across all these. That creates some problems because we have to listen to it joined and make sure it, it's smooth going across. And then the composer has to, or the music editor needs to do the music and make it work. One show ends and the next one starts. Same composer? Yes. Yeah. Same composer. But so he may write a cue that goes across and then he might have to write two cues that don't go across or the music editor has to make it work which a lot of times it would be mm -hmm. because you don't really want to change the music. No, you don't. You don't, you know. So, um, and again, the, the music is different on each 
of the series. It's not the same because, again, like I said, one is more gritty. At least I can speak for Chicago Fire and PD. They have a different look and they have a different sound. Did you mix Chicago Med or maybe the pilot or? One of the crossovers I, I think we had to mix because they requested us to because it was probably one of the early on crossovers that they had us mix. And that was just to keep the continuity, you know, across the three shows. But then they got more comfortable with the mixers that were mixing Chicago Med or there just wasn't enough time. And so we would mix two of the shows and then another room would mix the third one. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of overtime. Yes. Um, yes, because uh, for one thing is the client really liked the shows to sound good. They were they very much into sound. And, Which is and awesome. We, we, that's what we say. We said this is fantastic that, that they're willing to spend the money and the time to make the shows really a, about the best they can. I mean, of course, there's limitations. I mean, if, if we were given 10 days on each episode, we would have taken it. It would be great. But... Um, we we were basically limited to a seven-day week to mix the two shows. How did your family feel? Um, my wife, luckily, it kind of built into this. And she had known from back um, early on, there were times where I, I didn't come home for three days. Um, we just worked straight through. And... Um, so she was she was used to it. Luckily, the kids were getting a little older by the time the Chicago Fire and PD came around. Um, so that was good. But it does take a toll on the family. I have to credit my wife for, you know, taking care of all the books and taking care of um, all the problems that happened at the home, taking care of two kids. And I remember walking out the door and um, both kids there crying and screaming as I'm walking out. Mm. And... Um, on that day, I go, I know who has the easier job today, and that's me. It's true, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so it takes a toll on the wives. I, I know it does, and on the family in general. A lot of friends never really understood how come you can't go to Mexico with us. You know, can't you just take a couple of days off and... No, you really can't. And you can't. And when I was at Universal um, for all those years, 30 two years. I called in sick once because I just had such a high fever that I I blacked out when I got out of bed and fell right back into the bed. Um, but I was attempting to go to work. And then the other time was the Thomas fire because I thought my house burned down. Because when we drove away, my whole yard was on fire and the whole neighborhood was on fire. And the fire was burning up all the plants at my house. And so we drove away thinking the house is gone, and so I didn't sleep all night, and that next morning I called and said, I, I, I just can't come in because I don't know if my house is still standing. And then we got over there and were able to see the house, and it, it was still standing, but the yard was still on fire, so I really couldn't go to work with my with with your fires fire. yeah. burning around my, my 10 feet from my house, you know? So those were the only two times I didn't I didn't go into work. And my work partner, Todd Morrissey, same thing. He only, I think the only time he didn't come in was the birth of a child. So it's, it takes a toll on the family. Side. That's a tough choice, isn't it? Oh, it is. And um, even the day I got married, I worked till uh, midnight the night before my wedding. And 
Uh, so by the time I got to bed, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning and got married the next day. And we had our wedding on Saturday. And on Sunday, we had our uh, honeymoon in Oxnard and then off back to work. Do you regret anything? Losing the typewriters. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that still sits with me. That's tough, you know? I just remember, I'm going to repeat it, having them tell you, raise that, raise those computer keys and you're going, it just is going to sound like noise on TV. It's just going to sound like tick, 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 tick on TV, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so that, that's a regret. Um, I'm sure I have others. Um, I try not to, try not to focus on that and try to think more on the positive side of things and all the fun I had and. Uh, a lot of great mixes, really proud of, of, of a lot of them. Nothing better than when it's all working. You know, the dialogue's working with the music and you've, you've just got great tracks in front of you. You're given time to make it work and that's very satisfying, very satisfying. And it's really sad when you're working on a project and there's not enough time and you're forced to really just slop over things or you're getting bad direction from a producer or director um, that's a little tough. In fact, one series I worked on, which I, I won't mention it, I went up to Bill Varney, who was running the sound department, and I said, no more. I'm, I'm not mixing this show anymore. I'm, I'm done mixing this, this show. It was at the end of the show, so I didn't like, I didn't like leave Walk in the middle off. of the show. <laughs> and their next, it was a, a reoccurring show, but it wasn't episodic. So it was a bunch of movies of the week. And so they did, a, you know, one, two a year maybe. And I just said it's somebody else's turn because the direction they were giving me on the show, I was just, I'd, and I also said to him, I don't want to hear anything back bad from this show. If somebody from the network calls, you just say that was the way he wanted it. The man in charge. Now, when you're mixing and you're pulling... You're mixing a cue out in the middle of the cue and then just bringing it back arbitrarily and that you're just like, this is really bad. I'm sure you've questioned a lot of direction over the years. Well, on the movies of the week, that, that was a kind of a regular occurrence too because the you know, director would want it one way and the producers would want it another way and the picture editor would want it another way and it's whoever was in the room, that's the way you were mixing the show. And then during playback... Everybody's there. And so, you know, there's this big battle. And um, we were even mixing a pilot one time, and the producers were all yelling at each other. And I asked them if they would take it outside to the lobby. And then my phone rings, and uh, the engineer is calling me, and he's telling me, you know, your producers are out in the hallway yelling at each other. Um, is everything okay in there? And I said, everything's okay in here. I go, they're just not happy with each other. And that was a pilot that went on and on and on because the, the um, studio, not Universal, but the studio that was behind it really felt good about it. And they were trying to make it the next Law and Order, basically what it was. And Dick wasn't involved in with this at all, Dick Wolf. And... Um, they even on that one threw the director 
off the stage. He was he was asked not to come back, the director. <laughs> and so the next day, I'm wondering why he's not there. And then I get a phone call, and he says, it's me. Don't let them know it's me. And so I make up a name and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, can you call me from another phone? And I said, yes. So I hang up, and to not be too obvious about it, I wait 10 minutes, and then I excuse myself from the room. And I call him, and he goes, I know there's not a lot you can do, but can you protect my interests the best you can? Because he wanted the show mixed a certain way, and they wanted the producers wanted the show mixed another way. And so I told him, you know, that I would do what I could. And this pilot, we would mix all day. And then at night, a representative from the studio would come down and we would play back. And that was usually around 11 o'clock. And so then we'd wrap at midnight after the playback, get the notes, um, then do his notes in the morning and keep going. And I was so happy the day when I was too busy to finish that show. <laughs> We we went on to some we we were on to something else, and it had to move to my good friend Bill Nicholson, who was next door, who who was the the um, dialogue mixer on Hill Street Blues, um, on Moonlighting, on all those shows that we did over at CBS Radford, and he really helped my career tremendously. Let's listen to one more clip. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna protect my paramedics. Just sit tight, Chief. We're this close. Edmund. It's not him. It's not Shepard. Who was it then? This is my brother Edmund. These are a couple paramedics. They want to do some kind of wellness exam. Where are the checks? In the office. Who's it? Get out of there immediately. Come on, come on. So I really do have a lot of work to do. Can we just wrap this? Hey, Edmund. Uh, heart disease is hereditary, so if you haven't had a checkup in a while, I highly recommend it. I'll keep that in mind. Great. Okay, well, Mr. Lair, your pressure is good, your blood sugar is normal, your lung sounds are clear. We are pleased that you're doing better. Totally pleased. I got it. I'm clear. So that was uh, Chicago, Chicago Fire. Fire. <laughs> no, I left that for last because I had heard Chicago Fire was one of your favorite shows to work on. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, again, as I explained, or well, for the reasons I explained earlier, um, the client was fantastic. The uh, editorial team, uh, top-notch. Unbelievable. Uh, Jeff Kaplan, the uh, sound editorial supervisor, put together a really good team. And um, and we were allowed to mix the show the way we thought it would sound best. And they were always very thankful. We'd play something back for them, and they would just be going, wow. You know, because they've listened to it at the uh, – and their little in speakers. The at the, yeah. yeah, yeah, at the edit bay. And – they hadn't heard the final music and, you know, all these number of things. And so um, 
they really appreciated all the work we did, and uh, we really appreciated them. We really did. We, we felt so fortunate to be working with them because of, they gave us all the liberty to make the show sound good. That's great. Yeah, and, and to experiment, to show them something that, you know, maybe they didn't think of. And then they would even, they would come up with an idea and, you know, something maybe we didn't think of. And so we worked really well as a team. And we were all friends and, um, you know, hugs. And um, so I guess that's going to be different now. Completely different. Yeah. Now, what was your last day of work on one of the Chicago shows? No, it was um, actually on Suits. Did they have a big party for you? Um, they asked me if if I wanted a retirement party, and I said no. I kind of said to them, I go, you know, if I could sneak out the back door without anybody knowing, that's the way I think I would just like to, to leave. Now that you're retired, do you miss mixing? Oh, yes. Of course, I miss, I miss mixing, definitely. Um, we had a lot of fun. I don't miss the drive um, because it was almost 60 miles each way. And the hours um, are, are tough, but I do actual, actually miss the people. I did get together with uh, Todd Morrissey uh, one day before this uh, virus hit. And um, I, mix, I miss the creative part of it. Again, like I said before, that, you know, when everything's working, it's just fantastic. You know, when, when you do a scene or you do an episode and it just sounds really good, um, not just because of me, but because of everybody um, working on the show, that's really, really a great, great feeling. So I miss that. I miss the camaraderie of the people at the studio. And um, I even miss the studio itself, walking around. I mean, I would go early in the morning and work out at the gym and then take a shower and then mix and... Um, it was not a bad way of life then, right? No, not a bad way of life. Um, and then it, it also gave me the opportunity to retire, you know, and not have to keep working because you do hear about a lot of people who have to work till they're, you know, 70 years old or further, you know, these days. And so it was nice to, to retire while I still can move around and do things. Is there anything you'd like to share with newer CAS members or people that are starting out in re-recording? Well, I think what we discussed about go, you know, go to the set and see that. Um, uh, try to spend as much time as you can with your family when uh, when you're not working. Um, listen to people's ideas because you don't know everything, and uh, sometimes you think this is the only way it could be, and you do it their way, and you go, you know what? That is a better way to do with this. I really like that idea. I just didn't think of it that way. Um, so I pass that on. Um, try to have fun. Make it fun. Yeah. Because if it's not fun, you know, you really you're you're doing the wrong thing. Now I can't say I'm not going to say it has to be fun every day, all the time, but really try to make it fun and, and enjoy it, and uh, be nice to everybody. Be really mm -hmm. nice to everybody because we had a. We had a client that we did a lot of movies of the week for, and their driver would be bringing in fixes or changes, whatever you want to call them, throughout the day. And every time he would come in, 
I would say, Gary, um, did you want some food? Um, it's, it's hot out. Take, take a few bottles of water with you. You know, make sure you stay hydrated in that. And I would always acknowledge him when he came to the stage. And then one day, this is after years, uh, he, in the hallway, he comes up to me and he goes, you're the only one who treats me this way. He goes, I'm in, invisible on, on the dub stages when I come there with the fixes. And he said, I just want to thank you. So, yeah. Be nice to everybody. Words to live by. Yeah. I, I tell my daughters oftentimes, what's the most important thing? It's to be nice. Yep. Yeah, I think it is very important to do that. So that would be good advice. It's good to hear you say that. Because you never know, too, what they're gonna, who they're going to be next. But that's not the reason why to do it. But uh, Hey, they could be your boss, too. Yeah, yes, they could. Um, there was a driver for um, Ralph Bakshi, and we were, you know, good friends then and um, back then. And he's Marty Cohen and, you know, running uh, <laughs> stuff for Steven Spielberg. So, um, yeah, that's why that's another reason to be nice to people, but, but it really is to just, um, not think that you're so important and somebody else isn't. Yeah. And I've always told everybody I worked with the same thing and, and it's infectious because when Gary would come to the stage after other people seeing me, you know, treating him that way, you would all of a sudden see the producers who didn't even know him say, Oh, Hey, hi, thanks for bringing over the fix, you know? So... Be nice. Peter, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Let me leave you with a compilation of theme music from many of the iconic television shows from Peter Riel's career. I'm Stephen Thibault for the Cinema Audio Society. Mm-hmm.